Hello, and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm joined by my occasional co-host, Carter Laren. Hello, Carter. Hey, Carrie. Not so much for Deprogrammed anymore. It's fun to be on Deprogrammed. So. Yeah, it's like a special treat when you're here. Yeah. Uh, I like her outfit today. Okay, today. This is the standard, uh, <laughs> this is the obligatory, I don't care so much, but I'm a VC. I'm trying to be like, look, I have the jacket, but I wear a t-shirt, so I'm cool like you. I, this yeah. was my uniform for years. <laughs> that's like the relaxed professional. When I worked in entertainment, that's what they had our, our the host of our show wear. T-shirts and jackets. Yeah. Those kind of professional jackets. Okay, Today, I'm very excited that you're joining me today, actually, because today we're going to get to talk to um, Jody Shaw, who several people in the unsafe space community have been suggesting that we reach out to. Um, Jody Shaw is famous for recently speaking out publicly about the racially hostile work environment of her former employer, Smith College. She continues to speak out about her experience with trainings and policies in the workplace that create a hostile environment. A lifelong liberal and musical artist, Jody is possessed by an unwavering belief in the individual humanity and uniqueness of each human being. She believes in enforced adherence to critical social justice undermines moral agency and our ability to connect meaningfully with each other as individuals, and that a supportive community of connected individuals is critical to social progress. Jody is currently a team member at Counterweight. Many of you guys are familiar with Counterweight which is a nonpartisan grassroots organization advocating for liberal concepts of social justice, including individualism, universalism, viewpoint diversity, and the free exchange of ideas. Imagine that. <laughs> Welcome, Jody. I think we that's all so... wrong, think. That sounds all horrible. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> <laughs> we don't Welcome, want that. Welcome, Jody. By yeah, the way, Jody, I just, here. at the outset, I have to say this. For the past several years, we've been looking at social justice stuff, and there's various crazy things they do. Your story has, I think, literally every crazy thing all in one story. It's like they segregate based on race. They complain about cultural appropriation. There's the white fragility Kafka trap. There's like the low expectations, like individualism is white supremacy. Time management, black and gay people can't do. Uh, uh, white people can't be discriminated against. They ignore requests for clarification on their rules. They slow roll your complaints. Like literally everything is all in your story. Oh my gosh. I've never heard it put that way before, but you are so right. Yeah. This happened over a period of a few years, you know, like all these. So I had a, I was there long enough so that everything happened. They did so it all on that play. If we were playing SJW bingo, that's a winning card. She wins. Your, your yeah. experience is the winning. <laughs> I love it. That's uh, we were, we were just talking about the ability to laugh. Yes. I love that you have the ability to laugh about this. And I, um, I guess we should just start with people who are not familiar with your full bingo card experience at Smith college. Can you give us, um, a little background? What would be, how would you, how would you start off describing how long were you at Smith? What was your position and, uh, how did you start to come into contact with this ideology in the workplace? Well, since it is a full bingo card, I will do my best to exercise um, <laughs> a small digest form. I started working at Smith in 2017. It was the fall. And I, I just moved here from New York City up to Western Massachusetts, a small town. And um, I started as a temporary librarian 
So, and I was hired as an outreach and engagement librarian. And I was hired um, specifically, I remember talking in the interview about, you know, the ability to do wild and crazy things to engage students with what might otherwise be kind of boring material. And so I was a temporary librarian. And after about, gosh, the spring after I was hired, I was tasked to doing a library orientation, again, to transmit very boring inf information to students in a highly engaging, wild and crazy way. And I started working on that project and I decided to put it into a rap form. <laughs> and I think you know what's coming. Uh -oh. um, everybody, was, everybody was fine with this, by the way. And I am a musician, you know, I have experience. And, you know, I worked on this, aside from all the other pieces that one must do to create a presentation for 600 people. I mean, I was the point person. So there was a lot of details other than just the material and performing the material. So everybody was fine with this. And then something happened on campus. Uh, I refer to it as the incident of July 31st, 2018, for lack of a better term, <clears throat> when a black student uh, call a, a white custodian called campus police because there was um, somebody who in a building who was not supposed to be there. And it was a black student and she made a Facebook post about it, um, referred to it as sleeping while black or eating while black. And it, it blew up. Her Facebook post blew up and Smith College immediately sprung into action, offering profuse apologies <clears throat> and uh, uh, announcing its intention to initiate committees, discussions, policies, anti-bias trainings, and all of those kinds of things. So the, the, that, that stuff kind of ramped up at that point, even though it had not even begun to investigate what had actually happened. And so it was kind of like assumed that this was yet another example of systemic racism, which is what the student was claiming, or, or she claimed it was another in a pattern of racist incidents she had experienced at Smith. Um, <clears throat> This, this incident kind of snowballed into more when the student then falsely accused two other people who weren't even involved and their lives were upended. But in the meantime, I give you this for context because that's really that really sets the stage for um, a, in a walking on eggshells environment in which a custodian really, if you look into this case more closely, it, there was a New York Times article about it, actually. So I highly recommend anyone who's curious about it to go check out this New York Times article in February by Michael Powell. Um, it really created a walking on eggshells environment um, because the staff, the an investigation was uh, undertaken, I guess. And it was very exhaustive, very detailed, and they found no incident of racial bias. And, and yet the college persisted. They, they quietly announced these findings and said, the, the president said, but we cannot rule out unconscious bias. So still it was like, and then proceeded with all these initiatives aimed to combat racism on campus. So it was almost, they were supporting this narrative that it had been an incident of racism. Yeah. And the student had also falsely accused two other individuals um, on her and put them, their faces and contact information on her Facebook page. Wow. And, um, one person was put, one of those people was put on paid leave and never returned um, because he had an underlying uh, condition that was exacerbated by this. He could not return to work. Um, and then the other one was, ended up in the hospital at one point. Um, and she, she, st she was continued to get harassed for the rest of the year. So staff like me see this happening 
And we see all this unfurl and it, it makes you like realize that it doesn't matter even what you did or what, what, what you, what you, where you were at the time, if a student accuses you of a racist, racist incident or racially motivated behavior, you will be punished in some way. Maybe the administration isn't going to like come and punish you, but you will be, you could, your life can be ruined or at least upended in a very serious way that causes actual material harm. The, the college, the college did not apologize for this, for, for promoting this narrative that was then hurting these people because people, the public thought these two other people were involved because the student had named them. So anyway, that's a long story to say this incident happened and everything ramped up. And I was told less than a week before this presentation, you can't do the rap because you're white, specifically because you're white. Wow. It would be deemed cultural appropriation. And they referenced this incident. I ended up leaving and I was up for a job in the library at the time. So it was very fraught for me not to be able to do this, um, you know, cause remember I was temporary librarian. So I left that department. I took a lesser paying job in the department of residence life, very nuts and bolts kind of job, like thinking I'll be under the radar here. I can just, and I, there was a pay cut, but I thought, no, it's okay. I'll just do my job and go home. I'm not going to get involved. <laughs> I'm just going to in the, this mm -hmm. r race stuff. And I had been involved. I, I had believed it, you know, like I had believed that the incident about the student had been racially motivated because I didn't get have any information when it happened. I, and I was very confused when I told I could when I was told I could do the rap I was like, this feels like racial discrimination. But can white people be discriminated against? I'm not sure. Yeah. And I was like really in a lot of turmoil. So my solution was to leave go to a different department. And I found out that in that department, social justice is a core, core tenant of the department. And so things actually, um, I was expected to participate in discussions. I was expected to uh, help create and support a curriculum for students that was based on these concepts, uh, very much grounded in CRT and the oppressor oppressed stuff. And that felt really bad. Um, I started talking to supervisors gently, like suggesting other things like the concept of anti-fragility from Jonathan Haidt. Like I showed my supervisor a video and um, then something happened uh, where I was at a professional development retreat and um I knew we were going to be expected to talk about race. It was like a whole day devoted to talk, discussing our identities, which at Smith really focuses largely on race. And so I was like, at this point, I was like, okay, I, this doesn't feel right to me. You're not, you can't ask somebody about their race in a job interview. Like, why is it a continued condition of my employment to talk about my race? So I told, went to my supervisor ahead of time. I said, I'm not comfortable discussing my race in the workplace. And she said, no problem. Just say that at the workshop. So I went to the workshop and uh, everyone went around the table and, and, and I think we all know here there's a script, right? These aren't authentic. Yeah. These aren't actually authentic right. conversations about race anyway. These no, are and it's not a conversation. It's not, it's not a conversation at <laughs> no. all. But yeah. It's not. You are, there are words that you are expected to say and they are based on your skin color. Mm -hmm. Right. And we well, all know what those are. Well, you've used the metaphor of, of struggle sessions. That's basically what they are. and. Everyone yeah, struggle it's a struggle session. session. Knows what they're supposed to say, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it is very much a struggle session. And, but I had essentially been given permission, you know, like just say you're uncomfortable. So that's what I did. I was the only per, I was the last person to get to. And they, the question was weird too. It was like, please talk about your race slash culture 
in the context of your childhood or, or growing up in your growing up years and your college years. And things. so, so even that is like, feels like, I don't want to talk about my childhood work, you know, like that, that feels <laughs> the whole thing. And right. then equating race with culture, the whole thing was just like really reductive. So I just said, I'm uncomfortable talking about that at work. So, you know, it was a little bit of silence and then it went on. And then a little later, the one of the facilitators, hired professional facilitator said, any white person who exhibits discomfort <laughs> exhibits. So apparently, I, I even if I f seemed uncomfortable, um, even if I was saying the right words, but seemed uncomfortable, any white person who exhibits discomfort when asked to discuss their race, um, you might think they're uncomfortable, but they're not. They're actually, um, it's called white fragility and it's a power play. <laughs> so wow. that, was, that did not feel good. You know, no. um, I was, I was shocked. And, um, that was the line for me that, that was the line when I realized now we are, it's not just about feeling uncomfortable about like, not saying something now, now we're using shame because it was a public shaming. Let's be clear of me yep. as a white person, because I was the only one not to speak to try to compel you to say certain words, to say certain things, or even have certain feelings. Like I'm like to be not uncomfortable or something. Um, and that's when I knew I had to file a complaint in spite of the fact that a white person is not supposed to file a complaint of racial hostility harassment that's what i did i went and i filed a complaint and the story goes on and on i mean i went to file yeah. a complaint i was asked if i believe in white privilege i was told i was going to be handled differently because i'm white you know it was just it just goes on and on and then george floyd was killed right when i filed the complaint and so then everything went to hyperdrive there was more like segregated stuff happening uh, you know this there was a can staff. i can i jump in for a second and yes, ask you please. so when you when you describe that incident on campus of july 31st 2018 that uh i was thinking that makes me think of that's a good analogy to the george floyd incident on a national scale because it sounds like if i'm hearing it correctly that was that was the event that really kicked this ideology into overdrive at smith I think or so. Maybe. I think I think the ideology was already there. Yeah. Um. But it really put it kicked it into overdrive. You're right. Hyperdrive, and um. Then of course George Floyd did the same thing, both nationally and nationally. Yes. And somebody has told me that that this is a this is the pattern, and it's mm -hmm. a pattern like in a microcosm, like on campus or the or in a national level that there's an incident. Yes. And then whether or not the facts of that incident are actually in alignment with the need for this hyperdrive activity, the hyperdrive activity takes place anyway. <laughs> it's almost yes. like it's used as a justification, even though we didn't really actually examine the incident to find out. That is exactly, that's why I wanted to point that out because it, for anyone who's watching, if you've seen this unfold and maybe it's unfolding now in a organization you're in at your place of employment, um, in a hobby group, it always starts. It could be any incident. I don't know exactly how one catches fire and the other doesn't, but it, but there's, like you said, the, the reported so-called facts of the incident don't even have to be true. Um, in the knitting world, it started with a blog, a very innocuous blog post by a woman named Karen Templer who blogged about a trip to India and that's what set the fire off. It could have, but it could have been anything. And so 
so you you your story happens right after an incident at Smith that was you know in this microcosm, and then this bigger event happened where I think it yeah. sort of accelerated the ideology um, nationally. When you filed your complaint, can, can you tell us a little bit? I know you've already talked a lot about the leading to that, but can you tell us a little bit about the school's response? Well, um, when I went in to file the, to talk to the, it was a person, it's a person who's in, she's like a compliance officer to ensure that the school is compliant with EEOC. That's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It's like a national and state level, you know, to ensure that we're not, that places are not um, running afoul of civil rights, civil rights law. That's her job to make sure that the school is in compliance. And so she she handles these kinds of complaints. So I went in to, to talk to her about it and I told her what happened in the library. There was an email memorializing what happened in the library. There was the dean made some other statements. To, the dean of the libraries made some other statements to me. I told her what had happened in, in the meeting in residence life. And she just looked at me and then she said, do you believe in white privilege? <laughs> Um, and then a little later on, she said, "That's like asking, do you do you believe? It's like a religious statement, Joe. Like, do you believe in yeah. Jesus? Like, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior?" She's asking you to make a commitment of. I'm sorry, just do you believe in finish. science? <laughs> yeah. do you believe in biology. I mean, we we are at that point. Whether it's like biology is like a where biology is the religion and the social justice stuff is like objective truth or something. Um, <laughs> That's kind of like everything's been flipped. Right. right. So anyway, a little later on, she said, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was created to protect traditionally marginalized groups of people. She, she made that statement on two separate occasions. And then or maybe I can't remember. Maybe she just made it once. And then at the end of the meeting, she said, you know, if you proceed with a complaint, I'm going to have to hire an outside investigator. Um, and I said, well, why is that? I thought that was what you do. I thought you investigated these complaints. And she said, yes, normally I do, but you're white. So this is different. I, I, and she's like, I don't have expertise in this area. And I'm thinking to myself, isn't it just the same exact procedure? <laughs> investigating something a white person said is completely different than completely investigating something a black person has said. You yes. just don't get it. Um, can, can, I, can I ask you about, uh, you know, I just want to rewind a little bit. You know, you talked about the this incident, which turned out to be false, kind of being the the act that precipitated a lot of unrest and hyperbolic social justice activism on campus. It seems to me that the groundwork has to already be there because you've got a student body in a you need to have a community that's already in a in the mode where they're actively seeking a reason to be upset. And that's not something that happens overnight. I it can you is that your experience or like what was the climate prior to that like were they primed for this were they actively looking for a reason to justify their narrative well i mean we could ask that question of the student on an individual level you know the student believed immediately that it was racial it was because of her skin color um i think because I think she was probably primed. That's just conjecture um, because of all of the of the other incidents that had happened nationally. We have the the Yale incident with Sarah Brash. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, the napping while black. It's been dubbed. Yes. Um, but as a as a community, I mean, yes, I, I think 
this uh, this notion that of lived experience, you know, over objective, like the notion of, as I was told in residence life, um, we were taught about, or I was schooled in microaggressions, which is all about um, impact and not intent. Intent does not matter. And so I, I do believe that these things were floating around these notions um, and were probably on campus and, and were also on a national level too. I think they were there, but they just weren't as weren't in the hyperdrive mode that they are now after George Floyd. I mean, I, I can only speculate because I wasn't paying that much attention. And at that point I was kind of going along with it. I, cause I, you know, I arrived at Smith and I'm not a very political person. I'm not, I'm kind of rather ill-informed actually of like <laughs> political issues. You know, I've been a musician for many, many years and kind of just was not, I'm just not that political and wasn't really paying that much attention to the, the race stuff until I got to Smith and I was told even before this incident, I was told, well, systemic racism and white people have privilege. And apparently the way you can help racism if you're white is to talk about your white privilege and so on and so forth. And I just believed it. Um, I thought, well, you know, okay, uh, these are academics. These are PhDs. This is Smith College. They must know what they're talking about. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this. Like, I want to help. I don't want racism is bad and I want to do my part. And I, I, you know, so I was, that's why it was very confusing when I told, I was told I couldn't do the rap. I was like, wait a minute. Like, (laughs) so in a, in a way, in a way, and somebody pointed this out, sometimes it, I, even though I was still had that little, still small voice inside me saying something about this ideology doesn't feel right to me. I felt guilty for feeling that way. And I felt like that meant and I would never admit it at the time because I it thought it meant, oh, that's my white privilege or that's me mm-hmm. being like, actually, I'm racist. And that's I have to wipe that out. It wasn't until later that I realized that's my moral compass. <laughs> that's like, yes, my moral compass being screaming at me like this is wrong. There's something very, very wrong about this. And I think that's a really dangerous aspect of this whole ideology is that it kind of disables that moral. It, it like tricks you into thinking that the, the part of you that's telling you that what's right and wrong, it tricks you into like crushing that or um, yes. disabling it. And then that's how it, it replicates. Right. So anyway, I was tr- doing my best to disable that part of me because I thought it was bad. Um, and this incident happened and I decided not to report it because I thought, well, and also it was just practical too. like, even if it is, even if I was racially discriminated against in not being able to do this professional opportunity, uh, I'll never get a job. I I knew I was like a white person reporting racial discrimination. I'll never, nobody will ever hire me if they find out I did that. Like, so I, I was like, I, I don't know. There's all these conflicting things going on. So, yeah, I mean, it was there and I was aware of it, but I think until it, unfortunately there, there's a few people I know who have been speaking out about, about this since the beginning and weren't personally impacted like by it. I think until someone is personally affected by it in a deep way, I think sometimes that's what it takes for someone to realize, oh, <laughs> this right. is it really It sounds like you up. got stuck in a Kafka trap and you were like, oh, the white fragility Kafka trap. And once you saw it for what it was, 
it was, it, it seems like, cause you said that was the thing that kind of was your, well, that was the thing that sprung me into actually taking action. But I had, yeah. I had started processing when I got into res life and I was told I had to do this and this and this, I started processing and being like, and I, and I started transgressing my information bubble. I started watch. I watched a Jordan Peterson video. I think that was the first, uh, the first uh, step into. <laughs> oh my God, the misogynist, the you know, the like white supremacist Jordan Peterson, the Nazi. Um, I we had we have an overlap here because that was part of what I don't know if you know my background, but I was in the ideology. I was a true believer for about yeah, two decades. I, I knew that. And then Jordan Peterson is one of the things that. Uh, kind of started to help me make sense of that. What you just you uh, called those uh, those your nagging moral compass or those nagging questions that you're supposed to disable. Yeah, it really kind of brought those to this, those questions that I had been stuffing down for a while to the surface. But yeah, but so what what did you watch of his? I can't remember, but a bunch of stuff. I mean, once mm-hmm. I watched one, I just kept watching. I was like, I couldn't get enough. I was like. but mostly it was the stuff about telling the truth and how, how, when you go, how going along with the lie is the same as lying, like, or, and and about how lying to yourself, it's like, it's really damn, it causes psychic damage. And I could feel that damage. You know, Mm -hmm. I could feel it in myself. And I thought, wow, I think, I think he's right. I think this is damaging me. And so, and also damaging was spreading that lie to students or being expected to do that. That also felt really horrible. And so I, I gently, I tried to talk to people. I, I remember talking to two of my supervisors and both within a minute, I, I start. I was asking them, you know, can we talk about like, what does social justice mean? You know, like, what is it? And within a minute, both of them said, you know, I don't really think about this that much. And that was like kind of the end of the conversation. I was like, wow, like... I think I'm thinking about social justice way more than the, the people I'm working with, or at least like really thinking about it. Like, what does it actually mean? Um, so yeah, it was a process, but I think I was trying very hard to just, I was just trying to keep my head down. And I was also, I had started talking to colleagues too. That was the other thing I started doing. I started testing people out and like 90% of the people I talked to were like, yeah, this is really messed up. Um, wow. That high. Yeah. A lot like one-on-one it had to be one-on-one, like in a group, nobody would say anything. Um, but I, I didn't talk to 90% of the people on campus. Granted, you know, I talked to, you know, maybe up to 10 people, I would say. Uh, can I tell you, so, I just did an interview. It's not out yet, but with a friend of mine who, has just sold his company and is leaving the entertainment world. And he's someone who felt he, he kept, he censored himself. He was quiet for many years about woke ideology, but he said the same thing that you just said. He said in a group, people won't admit that they have misgivings or questions about this ideology. But if you talk to people one-on-one, they all will agree with you. Eventually they'll all share an anecdote about, yeah. And racism or sexism and, and how it's affected them in the workplace. And uh, it's just that it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. People are too afraid in front of others. They feel this need to comply, but one-on-one you can get people to open up. Yeah. It's the mob thing. There's something I think about that a lot. Like I'm really interested in the, on the internal processes of how this happens. Cause, yeah. cause it's familiar, right? We've seen this happen many times in history and so it's like, there's something primal about it too. Like, 
the fear of being cast out of the herd. Cause we see, we get, we have the heads on the sticks, right? I'm a head on the stick when, you know, like <laughs> we see what happens when someone does speak out in a group, mm-hmm. you, the potential for, I mean, people's lives are being ruined. Um, and, and sometimes not even for speaking out just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that that's, yeah. that's what's so terrible. It's like people who, you know, like dining staff workers who are just telling a student to put their shoes on because it's a state law, like being accused of racism. And then, I mean, it's just, uh, we, we see what happens to other people and that even makes us more afraid. It's like warning yeah. that could happen to you. And then you get eaten by a lion, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're out in the wilderness, like you're on your own. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I think it taps into something really primal. Well, I think we are social creatures. We absolutely need a community to survive. You do get eaten by a lion actually on your own, right? So it's it's kind of a funny statement, but like, yeah, that would be an ingrained natural response, right? Um, It's just like, Carrie, you talk about the ash conformity studies all the time, right? right? Where like a whole bunch of people pick the wrong obvious answer to an obvious question and very few people when they see that other people have chosen the wrong one, very few people will do what they know is correct and choose the right one. Most people go along. And there's not really even really any consequences in that experiment other than, I guess, feeling different. But that feeling enough is <laughs> Yeah, is it's so deep, right? That fear. I'm very interested in that too, Jody. I wonder if you, um, part of my process in understanding this belief system and understanding this mob mentality and the 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 psychology is lately I've just been on a kick of watching cult documentaries. Are you in that oh. phase of trying to understand it yet? Yeah. I watched <laughs> or, a cult. Yeah. I watched one a while ago, but somebody just recommended the next Nexum. Nexum. Nexium. Oh. Nexium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I've been thinking about cults a lot. And, and one of the, this just came up with somebody um, because the one thing that people say is, oh, but there's no leader. Yeah. And somebody I spoke to had a good, uh, response for that, which was that we live in a decentralized, our information is now decentralized. So it's like, it is a cult with a decentralized, it's a de- but it's decentralized. So there's yes. no it's one It's like leader. a cult on the blockchain. It's the decentralized <laughs> cult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyone can have a minor and contribute to the cult. <laughs> hey, I found some racism over here. I'm putting it on the blockchain. That's Happy exactly outrage. what. <laughs> that's exactly what yeah. it is. It's all these little miners working away, and whatever their field of, of study or yep. specialty is, like some are in the knitting world. Like I'm looking for racism over here. I'm mining. Yeah, and yeah. others are mining at Smith. <laughs> and, like net- and there's like a network, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally that's what's going on. It is a cult. I mean, it has all the all the characteristics, like you know, Scientology, like or um, in some sects of Has- Hasidic Jews. If you leave, you're out. Oh yeah, <laughs> you are. You're out, and everyone sees like you're banished, and you are going to get eaten by a lion, and that's that's definitely. So- were you in the like you describe yourself um, as you you work you believe in liberal values like viewpoint diversity individualism, so do I. I describe myself now. If people want to know, they want to put me in a box. I view myself as a classical liberal, but um, I used to be squarely in the social justice world, and I preached a lot of this stuff that I now find 
repulsive, like the idea that uh, you can't be racist towards certain races <laughs> or that you can't be sexist towards certain sexes or the idea that we must treat people differently on the basis of race and sex in order to end racism and sexism. I used to push that. And so I was in that world. Did you, um, were you uh, in the social justice world? Did you accept some of these tenants or was it more of, cause you kind of described it as being, well, I want to end racism. So I guess I'll talk about white privilege. Was it you kind of casually accepting some of this stuff? Yeah. Casually. And also like feeling guilt, um, for having that voice inside me. So, so in some cases, even going a little bit above and beyond, um, like going uh, voluntarily attending. I remember somebody in the library had a meeting for white staff only to talk about racism or whiteness. I, I can't remember. And, and I went and words came out of my mouth that like I was trying to. Was like, so was no, like, it wasn't a. It was a whites only, but it wasn't a, cl a clan rally. It was something else. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. The affinity groups on campus, you have black, Asian, like that's like half the population, Asian, um, um, LGBTQ, you know, and then you have white stat, white accountability group. <laughs> <laughs> because, because they can't yeah because they can't have just a white group like you can't have it like the other races because that would be can't have a bunch of white people get together just based on their skin color <laughs> god forbid <laughs> which so, brings the whole thing into makes the whole thing ridiculous right like, why are we having yeah these obviously, groups? obviously yeah i mean there's so many parallels as carrie just pointed out between actual white supremacists and critical race theorists <laughs> Uh, who are push, pushing this ideology and yeah. their belief about uh, other people, right? Their belief about different racial groups is, is yeah. I think it was, I hate to quote the guy, but I think it was George Bush who called it the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yes. But that's what it, like, that's what it is. It's like, oh, well, you know, we don't expect you to do these things. And, and I think you've talked to, you talked a couple times about, um, I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves in terms of your story, but the president in in some letter made some some comments yes. about well to the students of color i say blah 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 and it's really this signal that hey students of color you're very fragile and this thing that's really innocuous probably will upset you and i need to call you out specifically uh, because you're snowflakes uh, it's really condescending it's it's as it condescending as as the racism from the late 19th or the, the mid 19th century I agree. And that was what I found particularly troubling about being asked to create and push this curriculum for this co-curriculum for students, because that's what, that was the message. And it's incredibly disempowering rhetoric, both for white students and non-white students. It's um, just, it just, it's essentialism. It's like your skin color is kind of like, you know, like if, if you're white and you achieve something in your life, it's kind of because you got a pass. It's not because you actually did anything. And if you're not white, maybe you'll achieve something, but it's going to be really hard because <laughs> white white people, and also this setting up this toxic dependency, like as if yes. people of color, even that term, we could talk about that term, but um, people of color are dependent somehow on the whim of white people. Like if only white people do X, then people of color will somehow what be free? I mean, that sounds eerily familiar. It's massively <laughs> like, dependent. Yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, it's it's yeah. very toxic and unhealthy. It's unhealthy. Do you think I I don't want to get too far afield, but do you do you think that the people I'll say the elites who are pushing this, not not the people who like, you know, you said some of your supervisors just hadn't thought about it at all. But some people clearly think about this a lot because they write books about it and they're out, you know, pushing this ideology. Um, It's really hard for me to believe that they're not just actually racist like seriously in their hearts racist and are just projecting. That is a really frightening thought. I mean, to even the notion of white privilege, like you actually have to believe that white people have some kind of just believing that is that. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's, it, it is literally racism. It's racism. Yeah. And I mean, it's ironic, right? We talk about the president. Oh, we can't rule out unconscious bias. And it's like, I don't, I think they, they have this idea of what racism looks like, right? It's Klan rallies and it says, well, I don't do that. So I'm not racist. I don't think they think they're racist. Do you? Or do you I think, think some of them know. I think some of the elites know that they are bad people and they don't care. They're just out for power. But I think most people don't know. Yeah. I think most people like, like you're saying, I, they, you know, I, I think your description of yourself was like early on was was pretty interesting for me to hear because it was, uh, I think probably pretty typical for you know you, you you just you're not you don't think about these issues a lot. You want to be a good person, and they say some things. It feels bad to do what they say, but there's not enough. I would say um, probably there's not enough intellectual confidence in your position because you haven't thought about it a lot. So and they've got this patina of legitimacy because it's being pushed by academics in positions of Mm -hmm. of of prestige. And so you kind of defer to them in a similar way that you might defer to a cardiologist who tells you you have to do something. It's like, well, I'm not a cardiologist. I haven't really thought about the vascular system or my heart very much. If he tells me I have to eat more fiber or whatever it is, like I'm going to, you know, lower cholesterol, then I guess I'll do that. Um, and normally that's a fine way to function in the world. But in in this particular instance, the cardiologist is like an evil guy trying to, you know, shove cheeseburgers down your throat. Yeah. And, and it's an abuse of power then, isn't it? Because yeah. you know that the patient goes in trusting that the cardiologist, it's a fiduciary contract really that Mm -hmm. that your best and and it's being that's an abuse a massive abuse of power when um students and their families you know are they entrust their intellectual life and they're at a time at a time in their life when they're really growing and and developing their identity um a really critical stage, I would think, in their life for many of them, the first time away from home. And then they mm-hmm. trust this institution and this institution is telling them these these more really morally reprehensible things, yeah. I think. Something I, I think is jump really... In and just, Sorry, go ahead. I just want to say to your earlier point, Carter, you were both answering the question about whether they knowingly hold prejudice, like racist and sexist beliefs themselves. I think a lot of the ones who are architects of the ideology do Mm. Um, because, and some of them have admitted as much, you know, Robin DeAngelo has admitted as much in her book 
that she has racist views and prejudice towards black people. And I think a lot of times for those people who are architects of it, it's probably very psychologically comforting to then extrapolate this, these personal character flaws on an entire group of people and say, you know, they, they, they start, they fall into this ideology and they start pushing it and they start writing books about it because it alleviates that burden of personal responsibility for their own racism. It's like, well, I have this racism, but so do all white people and we're born with it and I can't help it. It's my whiteness coming out. In fact, I've heard this is now something that white people who are woke say when they do something that's considered bad, they'll say, Oh, my bad. That was my whiteness coming out. Um, <laughs> so, which but really I, does forgive. It's really a way to wow. avoid any self-improvement. Carry, yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cause you're saying this is innate because of my race, this character yeah. flaw. And, but I think a lot of the people who, fall into it or who casually accept some of the tenants, I think they have good intent. I don't think that they are coming in with this prejudice that they feel guilty about or whatever. I think they just, they have good intentions. They want to end racism and sexism. They're young, they're um, full of idealism and this ideology is being sold. At least to me, it was sold at college. Now it's being sold to kids younger than that, but it's being sold as this way to be a good person and to right the wrongs of the world. And I think people just, they, they, for people with big hearts, they can be, who can be easily manipulated. It's very attractive. Yeah. And that goes, it kind of ties back to the original point about trusting, right? Part of it's that I am a liberal. Yeah. Or at least, you know, I'm not, we, we, that's a label, but, um, Traditionally, like on policy issues, which again, I'm not very political, but I I'm definitely would put myself in the liberal camp. And these are liberals. I would I would argue they're extremely ill. It's extremely illiberal behavior. But mm. these are supposed liberals. This is a bastion of liberalism. You know, Smith College, liberal arts elite, the, the town of Northampton, this area of the country. Um, so it's like that's confusing. That was confusing for me. And I think for a lot of people too, who consider themselves liberals, where it's like, well, I guess this is what the liberals are telling me is the right thing. So it's not just the institution. It's just, it's, that's your, like you, that's your tribe. Right. So yeah. you get into mm -hmm. a bigger political sphere too. And then it's like, well, am I a liberal? Like, is yeah. this what liberalism is? You know? And I, that, I don't think that's what liberalism is. I think they're, I think it's an imposter. Yeah, I agree. Whole thing. Like most, I think like most labels like that, they're, they're used so broadly and by so many different people to mean so many different things. Like people can say I'm a liberal and mean that they're a radical leftist. They can also mm -hmm. say I'm a liberal and mean they're libertarian. Like mm -hmm. it's, it basically means I'm not a conservative, which isn't very helpful. Um, well, even in, conservatism is based on like classically, you know, like. Uh, it has some elements of class, classical liberalism, but I would not say conservatism is classically liberal. Mm. Um, although well, when they're conserving a classically liberal culture, they kind of by default look the same. But conservatism is just about status quo, basically, I think, fundamentally. Right. So, oh, uh, OK, you know, if they're conserving yeah. what used to be a classically liberal culture, it's not for ideological reasons. It's kind of for like tradition reasons, which is mm. a little bit different. Um, but can, am I, something that you mentioned about this vulnerable time and like people, it's critical for, for kids going to college and they're, this is the time they're being exposed to this. Something struck me and, and 
I just want to share it. I was reading the other day about this. Um, for sciences and like engineering professors or physics professors or whatever, they prefer to teach students who have had other professors teach them. Like the more prep work has been done, the easier their job is and they like it. Philosophy professors hate when students have taken other philosophy classes before they get to teach them. And that should tell you a hell of a lot about the validity and and epistemological methods they are using, right? It's mm -hmm. basically like, hey, if 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 we if he gets inoculated to my bullcrap, I don't enjoy it as much. Like I need to have a <laughs> blank slate in order for this to work. And if I don't have a blank slate, it's really difficult. And that to me was just really telling. Um, and I think in college now, you do have mostly blank slates with respect to um, these kind of questions about uh, liberalism, uh, justice, uh, individualism, like any kind of philosophical or political deep questions really aren't covered much in, at least hadn't been in the past in high schools or anything. So you get you can have a blank slate with these college kids. Yeah. Yep. It's a big it's a massive responsibility that uh, the the that institutions like Smith are what I don't know what the word is reneging are not not taking seriously. They're abusing. Abusing is a great word. Yeah, yeah. it's abuse. I consider I consider it abuse. That's an opinion. So we should get back to your story. So I think we we left you in uh, maybe I in won't the say office her name. of the EEOC the director of yeah EEOC. We who's gonna have to she's gonna have to bring out an outside investigator because right. he's white yeah and i don't know what her specific title was at the time but she were it's she's she's uh ensconced in the office of equity and inclusion or inclusion and equity can't remember they they, they kept they changed the name a few times i think while i was there but um yeah so she did hire an else i finally i i wrote this complaint which I mean, I put July 31st, 2018 in there. I talked about all the ways the college had had not handled it properly and how that had created a hostile work environment. Uh, it was an 80 page complaint or thereabouts. Wow. And it took me a long time to write. And I filed it officially in I filed the first part in February because I was worried about retaliation after what I after what had transpired in the meeting. Now I've been framed as an you know, my behavior had been framed as an act of aggression. So I, I was afraid. I was like, oh, no, now. So I filed the, a, like a, the first part in February and then I completed the, the complaint finally in May. It took it was a lot of work. I had to work on it outside work hours, hundreds of hours of my life. I won't get back. And then I think it was like within two weeks, George Floyd died. And then things got worse at the college in terms of yeah. the racially hostile environment. I mean, a lot worse. And remember for context, we were in the middle of a global pandemic that had just started. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. Um, the whole world was shutting down. Smith college closed and we had to send the students home. It was crazy, crazy, crazy time. And the staff were notified that there probably were going to be furloughs. And so everybody's like, oh my God, like, am I going to get furloughed? Am I going to lose my, going to get laid off? And in the middle of these announcements telling people, yeah, we're going to have to, you know, there's not going to be any students on campus or hardly any. So we're going to have to furlough some people in, they, they said in, in formulating our financial decisions, 
we are going to take into our, one of our priorities is racial justice. So it was like insult to injury, right? Like now, like you're going to prioritize financially this racial toward they some document called toward racial justice as Smith and all of the initiatives proposed in that document when people are being furloughed, when staff who have been hurt and are working in a hostile work environment are being furloughed. It's just the irony is like, it's just unreal to me. So th that, that was what happened that summer. And then I was being, I got an email from my direct, one of my supervisors saying just an email sent just to the white people in the department saying, let's have a meeting to talk about how we can support our black and brown colleagues or something like that. Um, we want white, white, some email from somebody saying white people are especially responsible or have more responsibility for, for doing this work. And there was like a white stem, white shutdown day or something. There were, there was just all this. I mean, suddenly it was just like flooding. It was like every week there was something in my inbox. And so then I started writing emails. I started, and then I started asking questions like, what does this mean? I've just seen this new word anti-racism. I hadn't actually heard yeah. that. And I, and this and anti-black racism. So I started asking questions and I wrote to HR. I said, look, you, you released this document saying you're going to tie, you're going to look at pay, pay structures and how it, how it does it work across registers of identity, like for staff. So things like that, I would, I picked out a bunch of things out of this document that were clearly tied to performance evaluations and, and, expectations of my job. And I wrote a long letter to HR and I said, what do these things mean? What does, can you give me an example of what this means? And I also um, asked, what does equity mean? Because mm -hmm. it doesn't, I think we're using different dictionary. <laughs> like by then I yeah. knew we were using different dictionaries, like racism, different dictionary, equity, different dictionary, at least what I thought of as equity. I never really examined it that much. And I, I never got, I went to meet with the director of the office. This is while my complaint was being investigated. The director of the office of equity inclusion a couple of times. And his, his response was, well, when I think of equity, I think of this. And he gave me an example. And so I said, so is that in a, he gave me an analogy of being invited to the party versus being able to dance at the party, something like that. And so I said, okay, is that the Smith College official definition of equity? <laughs> and he's like, well, no, and you should, you should read some, some stuff. And he sent me, I kid you not, he, recommend, he followed up with an email recommending I read Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. That was the first time I'd heard of that uh, book. And Me and White Supremacy by Layla, uh, that one. And then he referred me to somebody else. I mean, it was just like, there was no straight answers. Um, and and I, HR, I wrote to them, I followed up twice more, no response. They, they, you know, passed me around. So um, then finally, um, I was expected to go to some meetings to talk about this document toward racial justice as Smith. And I had already been told, you know, if you're uncomfortable, <laughs> it's a power play. Like I did not, I, there was no way I could win at this meeting. I like, I didn't feel comfortable being silent. And I thought, well, I'm going to speak up at this meeting. And I, I started getting really anxious about it. Um, I had a lawyer by this time, um, and I, I sent one hail, I sent a, I just, by this time I'd been thinking about a video like that had always been kind of the nuclear option in the back of my mind. And I really didn't want to, to go there. 
I really tried not to go there. I sent one final Hail Mary email to members of the president's cabinet or everybody I'd been passed around to. I put them all in one email. I said, look, mm-hmm. you're telling me that racism is an invisible system. It's, it's, I, I look back at the email. I'm like, wow, I'm pretty proud of that email. <laughs> it's like, this is morally reprehensible to ask me to do this, to ask me to push this to students. I have filed a complaint stating that I'm in a racially hostile environment. And now the environment has got grown more hostile. I ask that you stop doing this. That's basically what the email said. No response. No response. Wow. So I got my, I got on YouTube and I made a video and that was in October. That was the end of October. And a few days later, they suddenly concluded my investigation and they found that they didn't deny that any of the things had happened. They stated that they had a legitimate reason for doing the things that they had done. And a month later, I was put under investigation. And that was because uh, they they stated the investigation was, they stated a bunch of things in that meeting, but really what I was under investigation for was forwarding an email to myself that they contend had student, private student information in it. What had happened was after I made the video and went on, I went on Tucker Carlson shortly after that, um, a, we got a bunch of emails to the department and I answered the departmental email. Well, we all do collectively. And there were a bunch of emails saying Jody Shaw is associating with a white supremacist, Tucker Carlson, and you need to fire her or you need to reprimand her or denounce her, or, you know, just a bunch of emails. Yeah. And they were mostly from alums. In fact, almost all were from alums. And I was forwarding them to myself because I now have a, obviously I'm collecting any documentation and they said, you know, you can't do that. That's a compromising privacy. And then they said one of the emails had private student. And I don't, I still to this day do not know which email they're referring to. Um, There was one email where somebody mentioned a student's name, but this was an outside party. Um, So it wasn't like I had, there wasn't anything private. So I was under investigation and then, um, which is predictable. I kind of expected at some point to be, that's, that's a predictable course of events for an institution that, that I already knew at that point, I would probably be placed under investigation. Um, and, but I, and I consider it retaliation. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, and, and trying to say that it had nothing to do, you know, it was just ridiculous. Um, and there were other acts of retaliation too that occurred during the summer and in the fall, which I won't get into. And then, um, you know, there were settlement negotiations, which I will also won't get into. Um, and then in the end, um, I, it was time for me to go back to work. Cause I said no to the settlement negotiations and I had to decide, like you said, Carrie, <laughs> this is a cult. In, in my mind, I framed it as an abusive partner. Mm-hmm. And it was agonizing. First of all, the, the settlement stuff was agonizing. And then it was agonizing to me, like, do I go back into this environment? Um, I thought if I go back, um, I can like keep fighting from within, but it's also, it did something we haven't talked about is the damage or we touched on it, the, the massive amount of damage yeah. it causes to be in an environment where first you're lying to yourself for a long time. And then you start telling the truth And it's like, you're just, it's, then it's super hostile. And then people are retaliating and you're always afraid. I was always afraid I would be like messed up and make a mistake and get fired because there's watching everything I do. And I thought, you know, it was just, 
really, really, really damaging. I'll say that. It so is I like you said, it's, it's like knowing, like, do I go back into this? Do I stay in this relationship with this abusive partner? Yeah. And, and let it play out because this is the smarter thing to do tactically. Right. Or do I just end it and cut my losses? And like, that is a hard decision. It was hard. And you know, then you, I, I, at that point, then you're unemployed, you're not getting a paycheck anymore. Yeah. And I'm very public, so I'm rather unhirable at this point by, I, you know, <laughs> any other institution, especially in this area. Um, so that was hard. And I didn't know, and I did, did it, I did launch a GoFundMe, but I did not know I was like stepping off a cliff because I had no idea would the GoFundMe raise $5? Would it actually raise enough um, to help? And I had legal fees, you know, so I was, mm -hmm. it was very, um, it was a nerve wracking time. I remember lying on my, in my bathtub with the shower running, just crying, like just mm -hmm. not knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. And, um, but wow, I got so much support. But you ultimately yeah. resigned just for people who don't know the end of this. Yeah, I did. Story, I did resign right? and I resigned very publicly. Um, yeah. I resigned. I, I sent the letter to the college, to the president, I don't know, like around 4 p.m. I think it was a Friday. Can't remember. And then Barry Weiss published my resignation letter a few hours later. Yeah. So that kind of, I don't think was happy do about you, that. <laughs> do you regret resigning? I mean, do you, or do you think it was the right thing to do? What, like, do you think you should have stuck it out and seen if they fired you? Um, yeah, some people wanted me to do that. I'm no, just wondering. I no, guess. I don't regret it. Like I was just thinking today, I'm finally starting to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in recovery. It's like, yeah. it truly is like getting out of a cult. Yes. I'm still deprogramming. I'm still getting my self-esteem back because there's all this introjection that happens and it still happens to me there where I start to feel, I, I do slip into that. Like I'm a bad person and. I mean, it's gaslighting, right? Like that's what right. it's gaslighting, but I cannot, I am so happy to be out of that environment. I am so glad. <laughs> there's nothing that there's no price. I, I found being out of it. There's no price that at which I would go back. <laughs> so yeah. in my case, it was sort of just deciding to, uh, firebomb my own career in, in, in entertainment, which, you know, I had been successful in my small little niche of the world in, in working with comedians and producing TV comment, right. uh, content with comedians. But if I, but all of my, my whole echo chamber, my, all of my connections, everything was social justice in that world. And so, um, on this side of it, you know, there's no way, even if I, even if I went back, like, oh, well, maybe not at the level of success you had, but would you go back to it for this much money or this much, this career? No, because that freedom coming out of it is like, it's such a psychological weight off. And like you said, it took a while to divest myself of it anyway. It, was, it wasn't like it was just gone immediately. It, there's still like a, a sense, an internal SJW sensor in your head for a while yeah. that is that makes you question things or fearful or should I say it this way or that way? And you have to stop listening to that voice that cult programming, but over time, once you get further away from it, it's like, so it's, it's, it's just so light, so free and easy to say what I want. Yeah. 
I made nope. a, yeah, I made a video about that actually right after I resigned. I called it comfort versus freedom because because <sighs> in the end, that's what helped me in my decision with the settlement. I was like, okay, but when it, that crystallized that, that those were the things I was deciding between, then it was a much easier like comfort oh. or yes. freedom. You cannot have both here, Jody. So what are you going to choose? <laughs> it was like pretty obvious then. I'm going to have to choose. Although in reality, you weren't getting a lot of comfort from your No, I meant I, I was, true. <laughs> I wasn't really asking comfort. if that, like, I, I knew you wouldn't regret it that way. I meant tactically, did you regret it? Because forcing them to fire you would have been a, they would have, and maybe they wouldn't have, maybe they would have dragged it on and just made your life miserable forever, which is the risk, right? But I don't know, like, do you think it? you would have... Had it like you have a lawsuit now, would have been better to be fired. I'm just that's what I'm curious about. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but it was I considered a constructive dismissal um, where I was forced to resign. So that's yeah. OK. That's I mean, I, I could not go back. <laughs> so uh, in a way, that's. um. But yeah, I mean, I, I considered for... that tactically. I thought, you know, but I mean, they could have waited eight months or a year and then fired me for something unrelated because you know the further away you get but i mean and that i don't even think that would have happened because they, all that whole year they still it was still would have been i, I would have been very vocal probably at work yep. um it would have been very tense it would have been more hostile than ever their ice i mean they they probably would have been walking on eggshells too in terms of retaliation i i don't know I'm just yeah. very glad I'm not there anymore. I, I yeah, definitely made the right decision. So, yeah. <laughs> so for parents that are watching, um, what's the full cost of attending Smith College roughly? Oh my God. Um, $280,000. Um, okay. It's a residential college. So you're also paying for, um, for tuition and room and board. Room and board. Yeah. Yeah. Two hundred and eighty thousand. Okay. I think it's north of that now, a little bit more, like two hundred eighty. Well, let's so let's say three hundred k. When you assume that you could be making interest even in a crappy bank account, that would get you to three hundred k if you weren't paying that. So over four years. Yeah. Um, three hundred. So. Um, <laughs> oh my god. So why should a parent spend three hundred thousand dollars to send their eighteen-year-old to Smith College? Go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I would I would say the, the argument would be uh, one would be for to have the name, right, Smith College on your resume, <clears throat> but mm -hmm. I believe that is now being that now that is even tarnished. Um, I know there are some alums now who are have said they are embarrassed to have Smith College on their resume, um, but yeah, I can't. I really. I cannot advise parents. I, I would I would strongly advise, and again, this is an opinion, my opinion, that um, parents would strongly consider the ramifications, that this is not the liberal arts education that you perhaps grew up with or knew, knew, believe it to be. This is not a liberal arts institution in the tr sense of liberal, this is a social justice activist organization. And again, that is an opinion. That is what Smith College has morphed into. I I'm glad you used that word activist. Yeah. Activist organization. It's, I view it as buying into, it's a very expensive cult. 
it's like, you know, you have to spend a lot of money to be in Scientology. You have to spend a lot of money to be in, mm. oh gosh, what was that one? I almost went, got into Carter landmark forum. Uh, I consider, <laughs> consider them a cult. Uh, they're culty. They're cult like mm. cult light. Yeah. Yeah. They're a little culty. Yeah, they're, they're the they're, discount cult. You, yeah. You have to spend a lot of money to cult. be in landmark though. And this, I would say, this is a lot more potentially a lot more destructive to society and to your child to join this kind of cult because oh, it's not just much better than this. Yeah, yeah. Landmark is much better. At least Landmark's about self-improvement. Yeah. This is about yeah. instilling racism and sexism and prejudice and into your child and getting them to go out and remake the world based on this worldview. Yeah. And they're um, going to feel bad about themselves. It's yeah. making literally making students it, it's not about their identity. It's about there's. It's so upsetting. Yeah, <laughs> it's so upsetting. I I I would not when I during the course of my employment there, I thought to myself, I I have two children. And I thought I do not want them to go to college. Yeah, yeah. There's no way. Yeah. I'm like, there's got to be like like a construction. Like trade school or, or something trade school. like there's there's much more productive things they can do and they can have rich rich inner worlds um they can read i mean because it is this is not a liberal education any longer that's yeah. not college my my daughter and i have she's uh 11 not quite 12. um we've had this conversation and she, like i don't i'll if she really wants to go to college we'll, we'll, like fine but um I totally, it's, it's not a thing that is in, and I never thought, I mean, look, I'm not the kind of guy who would ever thought that I would be saying that to my kid. Like I, like, I, please like, don't you go know, to college. I'm, like, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Like if you had asked me this 10 or 20 years ago, I'd be like, of course, in fact, I want them to get PhDs and whatever. Like, yes, I want them to go to college. But now uh, it's like, you know, and if, and if you look back at some of this stuff, you know, the, the school that I'm thinking of now is, you know, the St. Did you know St. John's? Yeah. Um, oh, the great a, books. Yeah, they have yeah. this great books. I don't know if they still do it. I they pr probably do. Well, that was my. Like, that's how the could thing. you be woke and ha be have the like? They're antithetical. Yeah, that's why I don't know what they're doing. But I view them as like the classical example of a liberal arts college, right? Mm -hmm. They do it in yeah. a particular way that not everyone likes, but that's the kind of stuff that you're supposed to learn in a liberal a liberal arts education, yeah. and. uh with the exception of St. John's, assuming that they're still doing their great books program, uh, I don't think that's what liberal, liberal arts colleges are now activism. And even I live in the Bay Area and even a lot of private schools use the word activism in their mission statements about like building activists and like activism being part of education. And actually, it's it's really starting to and I think in a lot of colleges, especially liberal arts colleges, it has usurped the primary purpose of college. It's become an activist factory <laughs> yeah it really feels that way and they keep uh investing more and more money into the mechanisms for uh doing that like building up the the equity measures and personnel hiring more people to infuse more social justice um it really does feel like a priority that it's taken and and infusing the traditional liberal arts curriculum like with this kind of scholarship. And I can't speak too much to that part at Smith, granted, because I wasn't on the academic side, but I I know um, faculty members who um, 
would, you know, adjust their syllabus every semester to try to catch the wave of, of not getting busted for anything, you know, uh, potentially offensive to students. And that's, that's gotta be harmful for the academic side of it. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing the same thing at, at, um, you know, on small town city councils, like my city council there, there's a social justice council member who has groomed and is trying to bring in other social justice council members. This is a smaller town North of Boston and in, in a private group that they're in, she's very mouthy. They're not afraid of voicing this stuff where people can read it at all. I'm in the group. Um, they talk about their plans to bring in all these committees and, and, and they have strategy on how to get all these different paid positions in diversity, inclusion, equity, you know, first we have to bring in the facilitator and the facilitator has to do a training, much like the training you talked about, do a training with all of the existing city council. Then once they do the training about implicit bias, unconscious bias, then they will recommend that we form a special committee and a subcommittee and all and it just keeps going on. And they do the yeah. same thing at school boards. They're doing the mm -hmm. same thing in churches and corporations. And it just spreads like a virus. It's, it's, you know, once you get that facilitator in there, then it's committee upon committee. UT Austin here, our diversity, inclusion, equity staff, this is not, this is not um, faculty. This is just administration. It's over a hundred people large and it keeps growing. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. You know, yeah. That's where that tuition goes. That's, that's what that 300 K is for. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the new school that, or the educational platform? It was in the Epic Times um, and Michael mm -hmm. Rechtenwald. Do you know Michael Rechtenwald? I know him pretty well at this point. Yeah. Oh, He's okay. been on our show a few times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just yeah. know him just from uh, He's communicating great. online. Yeah. He, he's been out there for a while. Like he was a canary, right? Um, he's interesting mm -hmm. because he's educated in this. He was a basically social justice professor for his entire career until very recently. Um, so his his knowledge of postmodernism is not something to be reckoned with. They can't really argue with the guy because he really knows what he's talking about. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, he's going to be the chief academic officer, apparently. I read that in the Epic Times, and I forget what it's called. Somebody started, it's an alternative education platform, and they're hiring a bunch of professors, and apparently they were overwhelmed with applications. You know, it's it's grounded in traditional stuff, and they're yeah. going to teach American <sighs> stuff, and, and it's not accredited. And apparently, I, I just skimmed the article, but they said something about, like, why would we get a, like... Why do we need accreditation? Who, who I mean, cares? at this point, what? Yeah. yeah, at this point, we're truly yeah. going off grid because the institutions yes. are all infected, right? And I've heard this from uh, certain some psychotherapists too, who are letting their licenses lapse because um, they're like, why? There's such a there is a demand because this is affecting the psychotherapy profession. They're now teaching <laughs> that yeah. white people have a different model of psychological development than other people. Um, and it has to do with achieving, uh, you know, this being enlightened as to this anti-racism stuff. Like that's part of like your normal psychological. I mean, this is just crazy as this, this is an objective ingrained truth or something. This is what they're teaching in psychotherapy schools. And it's not, 
unforeseeable that renewing your license is going to entail some kind of pledge or yeah some or, or and even the ceu credits the 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 education you have to do to like keep your license up as it's just getting more and more social justice infused and so it's like well the people who are looking for therapists who aren't woke so they can actually talk about this stuff this topic and deprogram and and have somebody who's going to be in like that demand is going to be so high. They are not going to need a license. They can call themselves a coach. Like yeah. these people, I've had people contact me. Like, do you know any anti-woke therapists yes. that, that I can work with? I do know one, by the way. Um, and I also, can I just plug this since this is coming up? I, I want to post about this and I forgot. This happened yesterday. One of our unsafe space community members, she knows who she is. She posted her husband is looking for an app, an app and web developer to build a mental health resource to connect non-woke clientele with non-woke mm. mental health providers. So, and this is a paid position from what I understand. So if wow. you are a web developer, app developer, um, get in touch with us and I will put you in touch with her. Then I just plug that in the middle of your interview, Jody. No, that's <laughs> Sorry, but great. it applies. I mean, I love yes. that this stuff is like, and people are getting off grid. People are starting yes. to look for solutions around this, like workarounds for this woke orthodoxy in all of these fields. Yes. We're going off grid now at this point yeah. and we can do that and it's oh, happening yeah. and it's hopeful. It's really hopeful. Speaking of which, can you tell us a little bit about, I know a lot of uh, people in our community are familiar with counterweight. We've referred some people there for anyone who hasn't heard about it. Can you tell us a little bit about counterweight? Yeah, counterweight. Um, so counterweight is very grounded in liberalism and liberalist values. And so uh, they don't, it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. Um, they're not, their aim is not to uh, crush CRT. Their aim is to help people whose lives have been impacted by it and are having trouble with it, whether in their workplace or their children's school or what, what it is and don't know what to do. And so there's many, there's, it's many pronged. One uh, prong is it's just simply education, like videos about giving, helping people get the language and get a grasp on what is this? What is critical social justice and what does it mean and where does it come from as you know helen pluckrose uh was the is one of the founders and uh she co-wrote critical cynical theories with uh, james mm -hmm. Lindsay, and so she's very knowledgeable about this so one of the prongs is education but um one of the most beautiful things about count and they, they also do casework. So if you get in touch with them and you have a problem, they will help walk you through it, what to do. They have templates for letters to write to your employer. Um, they have like walkthrough videos. And one of the things I really love about counterweight is that they meet the individual, they meet you where you're at. And um, they don't say, here's what we think you should do. They, they want to know what, what would you like to accomplish? And, you know, not everybody wants to make a YouTube video and call this stuff out um, or is in a position where they're forced to, <laughs> in my case. But, um, you know, some people just want to be able to just do their job without, like, being forced to do X. And so uh, counterweight will help walk through, okay, how can we achieve that? In some cases, it might be actually joining the 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 equity and inclusion committee and maybe helping steer them, like maybe informing them, you know what, this doesn't feel like maybe being that voice and maybe steering them towards an alternative to this CRT stuff. Um, in some cases it might be writing a letter. In other cases it might be connecting the individual with a lawyer 
to see if they might have a case um, and supporting them if they do decide to make a video. So it's wherever the individual is at because not everybody wants to be public. This is very sensitive stuff and mm-hmm. not everybody is willing to, to get possibly be fired. One of the most beautiful things about Counterweight is I think is their discord community because what I tell people and when people say, what can I do? What can I do? I always tell people find at least one other person you can talk to about this because the process of deep it's gaslighting. It's crazy making. You are not crazy. You're not alone. You're not racist. If you're, believe me, if you're thinking about this stuff this, and it's bothering you, you are not, it's not because you're racist. <laughs> yeah. So like if you can find one other person preferably within your organization to talk to, to just regularly validate that you are not crazy. That goes so far that that can give you so much strength and courage. And the beautiful thing is that counterweight recognizes this need for community and validation and and deprogramming and and the need to talk about this stuff, to talk it out. That's how we figure things out. And because people are confused and, but you get, you can get real clear once you start talking to other people. And so they have a discord server that you, you can apply to be in it or just you fill out a form so that they know who you are and then you can use a different name on the Discord server so that you can still be anonymous and it's monitored, you know? Um, and then they have channels uh, like by profession. So you can find other people in the arts or you can find other teachers or so on and so forth. Um, and that I think sometimes that's enough for people. Like sometimes people just go into that server and they talk with other people and they feel okay, I'm not crazy. Like sometimes just knowing you're not crazy. Okay. I'm not crazy. So I can go along with this stuff. It's fine. Cause I know, I know where I know where, where I'm at and they're somewhere else. And, or sometimes you're able to troubleshoot with other people on the server in a way that you can solve the problem yourself or make some progress. Um, and you can just, you know, so th- I really like that about counterweight. Um, so I think counterweight is doing some great, great work. It's just, it's not like, uh, it's kind of behind the scenes, but a lot. They are very busy. Yeah. Very busy. They work very hard. Um, it's a great team. And they're really committed to their values. Um, so which I also like. Because I don't think stamp trying to eliminate CRT is gonna work because it's it's an idea. Yeah. You know, you can't like it's it, that's I, I feel the same way as so you have to and you have to offer alternatives you have to not just clearly define what it is and help people learn the language like you said but off, give them alternatives and alternative ideas that they feel comfortable talking about um you know who I really want to put in touch with you guys at counterweight is Jason Littlefield he works in education here in Texas and he just did an interview with us um where he's still working they haven't come for him yet, but he thinks it's getting pretty close to where he's going to be in a position like you, where he, uh, what was the word you use? Constructive dismissal. Yeah. Uh, and, but he has been developing an alternative framework that I think is really useful for people who want to come armed with something else. It's like, Hey, this also addresses diversity and inclusion, but it's not racist, <laughs> Like, but it's right. actually liberal, you know? So Anyway, it's I want to put him diverse. in touch with you. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually yeah. diverse and allows for diverse points of view. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what we want. You know, one one of the things that you you did that I I think is really important for people to do who are thinking about this stuff is I remember in one of your videos you 
you you kind of said, okay, well, here's what I mean by inclusion. And you defined it and you talked mm. about inclusion being an additive process. <laughs> and then you said, here's what it seems like you guys mean by inclusion. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like this subtractive process, which it is. I mean, it's it's Marcuse's uh, repressive tolerance. That that's what it is, right? Um, but uh, I think just getting people to start thinking about those three words, what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean? What do you mean by them? And then just go verify, will your organization give you clear definitions? Probably they won't because evasion is one of their main tenants. But uh, tenants, but if they if they will see if those definitions match up with yours, um, because I guarantee if you're not racist, their definitions will not match yours. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I think that's really important is to ask for definitions because it's also non-confrontational too. like it's fair if it's ex expected part of your job, say, to ask for clarification on terminology. Um, and then I think once you have it, you could go one step farther and this may or may not be seen as confrontational. It's, okay. Well then what are the actual, what would be the markers of being successful in that? Now that you've defined equity, what do I need to look for to know that we've been successful in achieving equity? Mm. Um, and then that's probably going to be equally difficult to respond to. And that's something I noticed at Smith a lot. Like there's no hoped for outcomes other than this vague equity, racial justice. Like what does that specifically look like? Like usually in education, you have outcomes, right? You have objectives, hoped yeah. for outcomes, and then here's how we're going to do it. What are the outcomes and are we achieving them? That's the next question. Like where is the evidence or data to support the fact that the fact we've been doing this now for X number of months, wh where are the data points to show us that it is, be it is successfully meeting our stated outcomes? So there's a lot of missing stuff going on there. That's what that is very similar to a, a, a question that I like to ask social people in social justice in general. The big picture, um, you know, they like to redefine racism and say racism is prejudice plus power. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's impossible to be racist towards white people because they hold the power in society and they do the same thing with sexism. And I like to ask them, well, let's take your definition. Let's say that judging and treating white people differently on the basis of their race is, is just prejudice. It's not racism. It's just prejudice. So we don't have to worry about it that much. So how long, at what measurable end goal will it become racism? Right. And when does it like even <laughs> when does it become racism and how do we know that's happened? And then, and then practically speaking, once we've hit that measurable end goal, which they can never define for me, once we've hit that measurable end goal, then how do we start teaching young people? And now, now that we've taught generations of people, it's impossible to be racist towards white people. How do we now flip the script and say, oh, oh, it's racism now. It's racism, guys. Like, <laughs> like you've already told them it's not. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? When do we? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And also, I'm, I'm just thinking about prejudice plus power. So if you take away the power... Right, which I guess is the goal, right? I don't know, but like, then oh, it's the just pre then what? Then prejudice is okay. That's kind <laughs> of what they're uh -huh. saying, yeah. Because nobody has power, so it's okay to to have prejudice. Oh, they don't want no one to have power. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that is not the goal. <laughs> yeah, something, this smells like it's about power. 
Mm, <laughs> yes, it does. Have you noticed yet, Jody, that when they die, they say rest in power? Which tells you a lot about what's at the center. Social justice people, it, when they die, when a when a friend die a friend, but well, they call them friends, but they don't have friends. They're allies. Comrades. When an ally dies, a comrade dies. They were like rest in power, huh, and that that tells you a lot about what's at the center of the ideology. In my opinion, I used to say that. I used to say rest in power. <laughs> you did? Wow. Yes. <laughs> you were. You were really in the cult. <laughs> you just start conforming. Your language starts conforming and you don't really even think about it. It's like one little thing and I then know. another thing and then another thing. And I then know. then you're afraid of saying anything that doesn't align with perfectly, you know, that, anything that's not ideologically pure that you might get piled on for. Yeah. Right. The, defini yeah. <laughs> the definition of which is fluid depending on the whim of the mob. Yeah, it's dangerous that territory. Purity. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who think if I just keep my mouth shut, I'll be okay. But clearly, you no. It, that's that's a time bomb. That's a that's a ticking time bomb. Uh, because as we have seen over and over again, with the guy flicking the booger out of the van who got fired for this making the white powers, oh. the white pow you know, like, I, I believe that's the story that I believe he got fired. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that wasn't he, legend. he wasn't white too, right? No, he was Latino, I think. Yeah, I think that's, um, right. yeah, I think there there's, it's almost like an obsession with power. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's at the whole heart of this. It's, it's talking about power, power mm -hmm. structures, power, 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 power. Like who has yeah, the power? I would say who it's not almost like an obsession with power. It is an <laughs> it obsession is. with power. It's, yeah, yes, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, um, it's not so. about it's not about race. We know that because right. clearly there are many many people of color who can see very clearly that this is all all very very wrong and all just more racism, and those voices are discounted those po voices um so because it's not really about race yeah it's about well and they have this they have this ambivalent relationship with asians you mentioned there's a lot of asians at smith college right where sometimes they got to be really mad at asians and say that asian silence is violence and blah 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 and sometimes they think they can get the asians on their side for obtaining power so sometimes it's about hey you're part of the people of color also um <laughs> so it's you can tell that it's really just about how will the Asians work towards me getting power? Is it like, am I against them today? Or is there some, you know, I think I can get them on my side for something. Um, and of course, they're treated like a massive blob, just like every other <laughs> Asians. Group. Yeah, that's like, do you know, the the, the number of um, countries that I mean, the number of people that fall under the Asian category, I mean, it's, it's probably like, like, there's not even such a thing as aging culture you know what i mean it's just no, like it's not so broad it's it's like such a i mean it's just unreal that we have an affinity group for asians as if they're going to share some i don't know collective personality or share interest just because they're asian right <laughs> like, try oh, going to japan so -so, and telling people asian. there yeah, try going to Japan and telling them, "Oh, you're in the same group as the Koreans and the Chinese and the Thai and the Vietnamese." It's like, yeah, that won't go over well. Yeah, it's the same thing as like assuming someone's like when oh, that person's Chinese just because they look they they look Asian, you know? It's right. like just very 
it's just it's ill-informed it's ignorance and it's it's doing the same thing really asians and also people of color that (sighs) i've had people of color tell me that they were a little miffed to discover that suddenly they are now a person of color (laughs) yeah this is a label that is being applied to them as if it's really a polite way of saying not white yeah i was gonna say that's what it means it just means not white means not white yeah which in and of itself is it's like a white supremacist kind of yeah why would you separate out white people and then be like there's this whole and if you're not white you're in this group altogether like white people who show up on time and have individualism and can achieve and then there's the people of color who that's all white supremacy (laughs) <laughs> that's what they teach it's seriously it's no different from a clan meeting and they're like like that thing you described earlier white people only can come and we're going to sit around and talk about race <laughs> only white people and we're talking about race and we're going to talk about how our whiteness includes meritocracy and being on time and math it's like that it is is it a clan rally <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so condescending can i tell you i I have a friend who uh okay this person's church has just recently adopted wokeness and crt and it started seeping into the church and it's a pretty wealthy white church and this person is one of only like six black people who go to the church and uh this friend is thinking of leaving the church and telling them why, which I thought would be so funny because you know, these rich white people are like, but we brought this in for you. Like, <laughs> like it's like one of our only black people's leaving because of, we brought in <laughs> critical race theory. Yeah. Cause it's a load of racist crap. <laughs> it's like, but it was for you. <laughs> we were doing it for you. You poor thing. Oh You're not like, what a makeup call. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, James Lindsay calls it um, that person's not politically black. Right. 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 And then I, Joe he, Biden maybe coined that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> you don't vote for me. You ain't black. You ain't black. Because yep, he uses like, ain't a lot. That's like a normal that. thing he would say. He wasn't trying to pander to a particular demographic. He says ain't all the time, right? Sure. Oh, I didn't know that. I know. I don't I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. Oh, I, okay. I thought I was like. <laughs> no. I've never heard him say that ever. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's kind of like, you know, trying to talk to the cab driver, like, and use like, like, I don't know, yeah. like, a, like some kind of like Palestinian accent or something like. <laughs> it's the Hillary yeah. Clinton when she, it's when she puts on that accent. She's done oh, that she before. Does the, she does the, she goes yeah. down south or whatever yeah, yeah she does she's so good they got hot sauce in her bag i'm like mm, i don't do you really um part of anyway. this is like also part of this is just let's be be frank it's just fake yeah yeah it feels fake it smells fake it looks fake um going to these meetings talking about white privilege scripted fake there's it's zero performative. it's totally performative and i cannot <laughs> i just don't like it it feels like a complete waste of time i i don't appreciate being around people who are who are like just a caricature of themselves like um it just feels like why are we talking i don't really feel like we're even talking because it just 
feels like you're not really because you're here. not there's not another person <laughs> there there's a there's a, a bunch of aphorisms or, or bromides there that you're it's a shell that spews syllables they've learned <laughs> but you're not talking to a person they already yeah it's it's programmed you're just speaking to one of the mouthpieces of this borg of this entity and it's like yeah it's you know horrifying they're, they're all gonna say the same thing it's like Stepfordville or something. Yes. And in that kind of environment, you you start to feel I don't know, there's something that happens to your self-esteem because you it's like nobody's seeing anybody else. You're not really right. seeing there's no humanity. Like it's totally dehumanizing. And yeah. right. like you can't really Well, I mean psychological not, visibility is a thing, right? And there's there's none of it in those situations, right? There's not No, you can't see any everybody's right. reduced to an abstraction and everybody's afraid to say anything real and they start mm -hmm. getting programmed so they're not even I don't know, they're just dialing it in, I guess. Some people are dialing it in. I I it's just oh god, it was such a bad environment there. That's why I think what you said, it's so important because there's so much gaslighting that makes you think you're crazy because everyone's going along with it and conforming. And like you said, that's why it's so important to find someone in your little world, whether it's at the, your school or organization or church, wherever it is, where this is intruding, there's a person who validates that you're not crazy. It's like in separate wives, you know, she had the one friend who agreed, who was like, no, you're not crazy. Like, I see this too. They're robots. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just you. But then, of yeah. course, her friend was turned and, you know, that was sad. You know, oh, but, you guys are making me, yeah. you're convincing me that maybe it's actually not a cult. It's like an ersatz cult because most of the other cult members aren't actually cult members. They're just afraid to admit that they're not cult members. So everyone's pretending to be a member of a cult and you're all in this collective Let's pretend that we're members of this cult because like a handful of them are and it makes the cult look like this big thing. But actually, there's not really much there. It's like the emperor has no clothes kind of thing. Yeah. Kind of. Somebody told me it's uh, I don't know where I got this figure. Somebody knows history <laughs> better than myself <laughs> or about the cultural revolution. Like it's five to eight percent of a population. Yeah, they're very vocal. Well, the cultural. Yeah, the cultural revolution was. Uh, mostly college students and some of the, yeah, it, it was, it was a small percentage of the population that actually was engaged in it, but they affected. Yeah. That's how everyone. powerful. Yeah. yeah. And we have the, we have yeah. the internet and I mean, <sighs> some days I just feel like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the other parallel to the cultural revolution, which I think is apt here is one of the things that Mao did, and he did it intentionally from what I can tell, is uh, so everyone, remember, everyone's trying to figure out what Mao Zedong thought is, right? That's their goal. They want to be on the same page as Mao. That was the important thing to show that you were a member of the group. But Mao didn't want to make clear. He never, he intentionally, like, played his cards really close to his chest. He didn't want it to be clear what Mao Zedong thought was because that would allow people to show whether they were in the group or not. And people would just signal that they were in the group and it would be over and done with. What he wanted was oh. turmoil intentionally. So he didn't let you know what Mao Zedong thought was. You had to guess what was right. And he would decide later, kind of whimsically, that's the thing that's Mao oh, you group, that group guessed right. Now you attack them. And sometimes he would change minds. Like people that had just been heroes were suddenly now attacked. Um, so it was a, one of the things that made it terrifying was there was no clear answer. And I, and when I look at this ideology, 
because it's ma- it's you know decentralized as we said but but mob controlled often they're really the rules aren't clear they might feel clear in the moment but they can change tomorrow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and words can suddenly be racist that were yesterday woke um and it it creates that anxiety because you don't actually know you're constantly proving your loyalty that's what ends up happening you have to constantly constantly prove your loyalty because uh it's a it's a moving target and it's really just about what mal wanted was obedience and (laughs) and compliance and that's what it's about they it's a way to demonstrate compliance it's power yep so can i tell you you're making me think something i'm jumping on your interview jody but i think you'll get a kick out of this this is exactly what you're talking about, how they shift the rules in the Soist community right now. There's a woman who is woke. She is part of the Borg and she released a fabric with Captain Marvel on it. I think it was Captain Marvel. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> but that's that that, something. Well, she has him saying um, uh, fight. It's him. And it says true patriots fight fascism and it's like a red white and blue fabric and got just first first comment no no times a million stop and reflect delete this and do better and then no way yes what's the problem i don't the problem is she's a white woman and she chose a white character and she used red white and blue and and all of this is problematic and so they're basically saying Black women have done the majority of the work fighting fascism. This design is problematic because, uh, here it is, because the fight against fascism has been spearheaded by the black communities and more specifically by black women. It devalues the blood, sweat, tears, and lives lost in the black and black women in the fight against fascism by placing a white man as the true patriot. It also uses a military man, and the military has not only been used to attack and subdue the black community, but anyway... My point is, this is a longer, much longer story. I just wanted to use it as a, an wow. example. An example I just saw. She had to bend the knee. She's already in the cult. Did she apologize? Then she apologized. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna burn it. I'm gonna, yes. have, I'm gonna have a ritualistic burning. I'm gonna film yes. it. I'm gonna bow it down. <laughs> it's like I'm so sorry again. Also, anybody who's not black. No commenting on my post. I only want to hear from black voices and, you know, like all the signals. She's like tap dancing like my dog. When he wants a treat, he does all the tricks at once. He's like bowing and then he's like laying down and then rolling over. He's like, that's what she's doing. She's doing the tap dance. Anyway, all I can say is, wow, because if she used a black person on there, whoa. So it's like it's like it makes you not want to do anything. And now you're, we're getting into the realm of creativity, right? Yeah. What yeah. is this doing to people who are creative? Like you can't oh, fucking yeah. do anything. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it, it's oh my god. Yeah. That's, this uh, is probably. I mean, I, I feel like we could go on this forever because Carrie's talked about this too now, right? This is one of the reasons that comedy is kind of crap now because there's oh. it's so constrained that they're everyone's afraid to just say something because it might be somehow yeah. taken as some proof that you're an evil person which only drives up the demand i might add yes yeah so i think that's one of the forgotten realms of this if we want to call it a battle for sanity (laughs) um we can talk about it a lot but we really do need uh comedy 
We need sports that aren't infected by this, where people root for the same team, regardless of what they their ideology is. Um, and I, I think, I don't know, I just think like comedians who can bust out of that, like, oh my God, Tom McDonald, the rapper. <laughs> doing so I well. I love Tom McDonald. He's doing so yes. well. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a huge, people are starving for authenticity, and there is none available, so. You nailed it, by the way, authenticity. Yeah. That's it. Uh, Something real. Because you said this other stuff is so fake, and young people can smell that. They can smell that fakeness. It's so fake. And people can't help but respond to authenticity. That's the thing, like, even if you're super woke, like, there's and even if you don't want to admit it like you can't it's a human thing and that's really at the center of of art and comedy and all that like this human condition that if you can tap into it successfully in a way if you can make somebody laugh in spite of themselves like michael jackson you think you might think he's you know he's a pedophile and he's horrible and all this stuff but when i hear billy jean I just, my body just responds, you know, like I can't, like, it's not even an intellectual process. And so if we can somehow bypass the intellect and, and come at it from these other areas that, um, people aren't going to put it through their social justice filter or whatever. I love Tom McDonald, big plug for Tom McDonald and Nova Rockefeller. I love Nova Rockefeller as well. Like they are. They are, like you said, there's a, there's a, there's a hunger for it. People are starving for it. And that's why I think a lot of the independent comic books have done so well. Tom McDonald, independent rappers doing so well. And now we just have to get to that place with comedy and yeah. with TV and film. And yeah, I know they're off grid. Yeah. Off grid. off grid. I mean, he's, he's still on YouTube, but like he can't be canceled. Yeah. <laughs> as he said, well, as and he I think so poignantly states in his. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And there is some comedy, right? Like Ryan Long is doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan Long, and... yeah. What about Constantin? Uh, oh, Kissin? Two... Is, yeah. that, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Constantin uh, Kissin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Bill yeah. Burr. Doesn't Bill Burr do, do some? I don't know if he does. Bill Burr, I think, is a little iffy. Sometimes he's like, I don't know. I need to watch more of him before I, I return a verdict. People have told me sometimes he's woke and sometimes he's not woke. And so mm-hmm. I don't know myself, though. Mm, well, honestly, that's like I'm not a I'm not a conservative um, and I'm not religious either. So I disagree a lot with Steven Crowder and some of the stuff is, you know, not up my alley. But watching Steven Crowder is enjoyable because everyone there is just being their authentic selves and like doing their thing. And sometimes they say stuff that I'm, you know, I don't watch them very often, but like I get a sense of authenticity there. They're 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 saying what they think and and meaning yeah. it and being funny in ways that are edgy and sometimes probably make people go, I don't know if I, I don't know if I like that you did that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and again, I, you know, he's, he's not, he's not even someone with whom I agree on a lot of stuff, but the authenticity is attractive. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's another problem, isn't it? Like if somebody doesn't says one thing, that somebody doesn't agree with then the whole person gets written off right nice. like that's my issue with tucker carlson like people are like how could you associate you know i i was with you until you went on tucker carlson even though nothing had changed in in what i was saying and it's like you know how can you associate with tucker carlson it's like well i don't agree with everything he says but i actually really respect him he's very thoughtful um sure. i've seen him in in other mm-hmm. 
you know, interviews where he's being interviewed. I'm like, wow, he's actually a really thoughtful guy. Um, he's really well-read and articulate and, and has some really, he really thinks hard about stuff. And I really respect him for being a, a champion of the underdog consistently, I think. So I don't know. He's yeah, someone that they, they, they just feel like there are certain people that if they get enough of the Borg to agree that a person is white supremacist or whatever, an unperson, they unperson you, then they, they feel comfortable saying it as if it's a statement of fact and they don't feel, yeah. they don't feel like they have to even defend it. Calling someone that is a serious charge and it actually yeah. belittles the severity and, and the, the danger of white supremacy as an ideology to call people that when they're not, and they don't care. They just throw it around and it's really based on have we, do we feel comfortable doing it? Do we, will enough people not agree with this person? Have we done a mm -hmm. good enough job? And with Tucker Carlson's one of those people, they feel like, I, I think they think they've sufficiently unpersoned him with enough people in the board that they can just say it yeah. and you don't need to offer evidence. Yeah. I think Bill Maher actually, somebody told me Bill Maher is getting put in that category. Slowly. They're taking his hall pass away. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. White supremacy. You know, I think any kind of supremacy movement is a little iffy. Black supremacy. Yeah. Um, you think? Asian supremacy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk about white supremacy a lot, but like, you know, let's, let's be real. Supremacy is probably, I mean, it, it's again, it's an idea. It's a concept. It's a concept. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to get rid of the concept and if we're really being honest with ourselves, people can think whatever they want. Mm -hmm. That is at the root of liberalism. <laughs> and so if people want to have thoughts in their head, then that is their prerogative. That is like, you literally cannot, I mean, I guess you could, you could program people and, and try to manipulate them, but um, people are at base free to think what they want um we can you can try to persuade somebody but it's really our behavior that matters it's right. really what we do and that's what our entire system is based on our system of justice um acting on you know you can think about murdering somebody that's not against the law but if you murder somebody that's a whole nother story so um, even this whole notion of oh, so-and-so is racist or, well, what does that mean? Like, did they commit a racist act or are you saying that they're having, I mean, I think people would, some students would look at me and say, she's thinking, having racist ideas. And it's like, well, first of all, I'm not, but even if I was, what does that mean? Like, I'm not committing, I'm not, the, <laughs> we, it, racism has gone from something somebody does to something somebody just is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem. Like the, our inner world is now up for grabs, apparently. Like our inner world is now up for examination by the, by the society and, and they will, and the mob will decide if it's up to, up to snuff or not. And I think that that, and now we have all these technological communications, which um, can make things pretty, dangerous mm -hmm. plus yeah. fake say the wrong thing yeah what and, and they can presume think, to know what you're thinking as much yes, as they want and they, right? they assume and presume and that is the crime 
it's it's thought crimes that's mm-hmm. i guess thought that's crime. what i'm talking about i didn't i didn't think of it that way but yeah the crime of having a thought and mm-hmm. especially for an artist i think it's really the realm of the imagination once you start putting limits on that like telling an artist for example this, this sewing person like uh you can't write that story about that jewish person because you're not jewish mm-hmm. like once you start doing that to an artist you, you you're going to destroy and in and they start believing or internalizing it getting programmed and then they're, they're not going to be able oh, to the writing. wonder that yeah. yeah the writing suffers because then you're constrained by uh your number one priority is is to not break any of these taboos these social justice taboos and you have the sensor in your head and so that becomes more important than writing an engaging story and you're just checking off just like when i was in it i wasn't engaging in thought not not like actual thought yeah it's a flow you're just going through the checklist to make sure you're not saying the wrong thing and the writers are doing the same now it's it's like um God, one of the last, I, I mentioned this recently in another interview, but one of the last most embarrassing things I did before I left the ideology was when I was still working in entertainment, I was helping these three comedy writers with a, a film, film script that was, it was a hilarious script. I was helping them, I gave them tips on how to rewrite it to make it more palatable to social justice types, mm-hmm. change the ethnicity of this character, add a trans mm-hmm. character, take out this dialogue and replace it with this you know, and they, to their credit, were like, no, (laughs) but, but I was really like, but you're going to get, you're not going to get seen in certain rooms, you know, if you don't do this. And, um, so what they stuck, they stuck to authenticity and writing Mm -hmm. a funny script above, like just going in and, and, and writing based on a social justice committee and, and, tenet of belief oh my god yeah because then it becomes just propaganda right yeah Yeah. we can all see through that well i mean one um, of the one of the goals of the censorship is thought control right it's totally yes it's it's not it's not that they don't want you to write your article or say your youtube video that too because they don't like you influencing other people but really they don't want you thinking that way and they don't want other Mm -hmm. people thinking that way and Mm -hmm. they like it's about thought control that's what it's about which is the most illiberal thing I can imagine. Yeah, it's really illiberal. It's it's really dangerous, and and it's not it's not progress. It's not moving forward. Yeah, we well, you can't we can't move forward if we're not allowed to think freely and talk freely. I would argue. I think the premise, though, here here's I, I used to think that was they were being hypocritical, but I don't think they are because we're operating on the premise that they think these rules apply universally to everyone, and I think. I think the idea is the cattle shouldn't think, but there should be an, a group of elites who get to pontificate and break their own rules. And because some of these people are, they are kind of horrible people. Uh, they're the kind of people who are mean to wait staff and like, have, we already <laughs> talked about like, the elites, they're yeah. actually racist. And like, you know, we've talked about it with the Me Too movement also, where like guys will say, well, I apologize, but that's how all guys are. And like, we all, us guys have to do better. And it's like, no dude that's you um and so like they i think that they think that they can be they'll be part of some elite governing body governing structure to society where they get to have it's like caligula gets to do whatever he wants but this but no one else should think and needs to go go back into your your box 
and and mm. do your thing because they know better how to run society. They're smarter than we are. They're more enlightened. And they, and there's and and the concepts that you know one of the the key tenets of liberalism, like classical liberalism, is universalism. That that these ideas should apply universally to everyone. Um, that there's no there's no divine right of kings. And what they want to do is reintroduce the divine right of kings, but they want to be the kings. Yeah, it's monkey monkey business, isn't it? It's monkeys. We're we're basically monkeys, really. Mm -hmm. They had to. Power. In the the short story Harrison Bergeron, when they oh, adapt yeah. when they adapted it and made a movie out of it, I don't know if you've seen the movie version. No. It's not that great, but they had to flesh out the story a bit to to carry a whole film, and so they added a lot that was not in the short story. And one of the things they added is you get to see that elite ruling class who exempt themselves from the rules. The, the rules are like apply to us. Department of Equity. Yes, they're the <laughs> Department of Inclusion and Equity. Right. The rules don't apply to us, but we get to make, this is how society runs smoothly for all the underlings, is for us to impose these equity rules on, you know, no meritocracy and nobody can excel at anything. And that's how we avoid war and inequality. But we can break all the rules because we're the manager class. You think it's, it's always been that way? I mean, it's it's not just applicable to it's like taking the form of equity, but there's always been like a, yeah. an elite ruling class that or right people I who mean, want to rule. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because even I if there's always been that. Yeah. Even if it's uh, there wasn't woke around, there would there's always. Oh know. yeah. Religions, well, I mean, look, let's like. Yeah. Some religions of it's like we we get to be the ones. Carter's the one that told me. I didn't know this history of the of the Catholic Church in particular. There was a period. I don't know how long that period lasted, Carter. But he was telling me there was a period of time where you weren't allowed to read the Bible, where they were like, "We will interpret the Bible for you and mm -hmm. tell you what it says." What? What about right. a personal relationship with God? <laughs> Right. How come that's I can't not, read God's word? That's not allowed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, you, I mean, you, you see that over and over again in, in history. I think there's always there's always a set of people, and I don't know what it is that causes this psychologically, but I, there's a there's always a subset of humans who want to rule, um, and <laughs> and and there's a subset that will marry that subset that wants to be ruled. Want to be ruled. Right. And yeah. then there's the rest of us who are kind of like, can you leave me alone? I don't want to rule anyone. I don't want to tell anyone what to do. Also, leave me alone. <laughs> like that, that's not all of humanity. And I don't know why that is, but it's persistent. It's and monkey business. It's chimps. Like, yeah. It's well, like even dog. the progressives. Look, I mean, I know I, the word progressive sounds nice. It means progress. But look, the late 19th century progressives, they weren't into equality and universality at all at all hmm. they they wanted they were eugenicists they were trying yeah, to introduce policies right. to get rid of the undesirable workers right like <laughs> these these people shouldn't breed because they're not good enough like it's not none of this is new i don't think it's just the aristocracy he's changed from sultans and kings to uh you know politicians to academia to whatever like whatever we're in now which is this kind of plutocracy sort of i don't, I don't know <laughs> what exactly it is it's it's the whatever category bezos and uh bill gates <laughs> bill gates and 
politicians George Soros. <laughs> and George Soros have like whatever that conglomerate is like it's that it's those elites. And we all kind of know who we're talking about. And people use terms like the cathedral when they they talk about, you know, what that means. But um, yeah, I mean, look at what the look like, at the Great Reset. They want us with they they believe in central control. They They believe they should be in control and you should do your thing within the limits they give you. Yeah, that's that's not what our country is based on at all. <laughs> but yeah. no. I mean, it ha in reality, it happens right through money. But it, I feel like I'm just thinking about I've been thinking about the United States a lot lately. <laughs> this woke stuff like um, just the model, the experiment, the experiment mm. and um, the progress the the imperfect progress that has been made and the number of people who want to come here because yeah. they have do have a shot at having some power and some money and having a comfortable life yeah do you think that class includes um <clears throat> like what about the intelligentsia which is a little i mean because like like journalists and yeah, yeah, I would right. say that they, I mean, they that includes just academics. them. I think that the reality of that class is there's a whole conglomerate that believes that they are in that class. But if <laughs> if the Marxist revolution happens, most of them will get put up against the wall and shot first. And whoever the big thug is, like, yeah, they'll take over. Right. Yeah, that's but, what, <laughs> but, <laughs> that's but the they irony, think they're right? in it. They, they think they're yeah. protected. They think right. they're protected. And they're the ones that they kind of, this all came from, right? And mm -hmm. that's what I try to convince um, some faculty members who are afraid to speak out, like, about, to, to speak out. I'm like, but don't you understand, like, you're going to be the, probably going to be the first one to go if it ends up, if right. this continues, like, it's probably not going to be me. Yeah. They're going to drive by my house and be like, oh, yeah, she's just, you know. <laughs> They're not, she's, she cares about her. she's not a threat. Yeah. Right. She's an underling. She's an underling. Like I, that's usually how it goes, right? It's usually they're, they're the first to go. Like we create these conditions and then the thug steps in because everybody's yeah. malleable and then gets rid of like Stalin banishing all the actual doctors who knew actually how to practice right. medicine. Paul Pollitt. Paul, Pol Pot did it. Stalin did it. Uh, Mao Zedong did it. And Yuri Bezmenov, when he defected to the U.S. or Canada, explicitly said, like, yeah, that's what's happened. That's what happened. That's so what happens. Yeah. The liberals will be the one that he used the word liberals, I think. And, and mm. it was they meant really the kind of intelligentsia. Right. That intelligentsia in, again, the Russian Revolution, even they did it. Right. So yep. that intelligentsia, they they're because they're. <laughs> leaders and thinkers and agitators they're very useful to getting the revolution won but once the revolution is won <laughs> then they're a First, threat they're yeah. really hindrance <laughs> you don't want them around at all <laughs> right <laughs> you made me think do you jody do you know that movie it's a kind of old movie um so i married an axe murderer with yeah, but I ha I don't think I've seen it. I know Mike it's like Myers. an eighties movie, right? Yeah, there's yeah. a part where he's playing his dad, who's this con this Scottish con conspiracy theorist, and he talks about how the Pentav everyone knows the world is run by the Pentaveret, which is a secret conglomerate of the Queen, the Vatican, the Rothschilds, the Gettys, and the <laughs> Colonel Sanders. And it's this five. And I'm like, as you guys were talking, I was I was like, oh my gosh, it's the Pentaveret, but it's Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and George Soros <laughs> and Bill Gates. 
and the Colonel Sanders. And Jeffrey Epstein. With Jeffrey Epstein providing that as your concierge. (laughs) The ghost of Jeffrey Epstein, or is he? Um, (laughs) Well, I want to, I am so happy that we've had you on. I do want to get close to wrapping up because I have, I have another interview I have to go to. Um, Unfortunately. It's been a long one. It's good though. And Jody, I just saw that you were on Canceled with Rob Rosen and Desma Simon. Desma Simon, I love yes. those guys. Yes. Oh my God, it was such a great because we yeah we talked about the rap thing a lot. Like Desma's like I don't even listen to rap. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like Rob's the hip hop guy. Yeah, You're, it was a good. Rating. Do you, you do you know those guys? I do. They're really cool. We've had them on the show before. Oh um, really? I'm so happy you got to speak with them. Oh. And, um, we will, uh, well, before we go, we're going to, we're going to put your bio in the show description and we'll put links to follow you. But can you just tell people you do currently have a lawsuit pending? Is that correct? With Smith? Uh, yeah, it's in the EEOC. That's the first step or okay. once it gets through there. And if people want to support step. you, where can they do, do so? Oh, I, I just go to my website because everything's there. Um, okay. And there's a couple other workers, the falsely accused workers. They have GoFundMes. You can support them. Um, it's Jody Shaw, J-O-D-I-S-H-A-W dot net. JodyShaw.net. Yeah, then... I think I have links to everything there. I don't think there's a link to the YouTube, though. You can just Google that if you want to watch some videos. Um, cool. Yeah, I'm going to be releasing cool. a new video soon. Haven't done one in like three months. I've just been if- trying to. Are you going to be releasing any rap? No. <laughs> I didn't say no. Oh, yeah. oh, that's what you're doing. Do you hang it? Do you know? Um, you obviously probably know recording? Benjamin. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know Benjamin. I I know Benjamin. Yeah. You guys should do something like that together. If, if you have Yeah, he's great. He um actually put I did an interview with him a while ago and he put uh, one of my songs he did an intermission or whatever and had like one of my songs it was or one of my videos like it was like an animated video it's really cool. That's cool. I didn't say I was releasing a rap I didn't say I okay. wasn't either the rap meaning the okay. rap I I didn't say the, either she way she didn't say that here but you can visit jodyshaw.net <laughs> or find her on YouTube. Thank you Jody so much for coming by. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Jody. This really great, Carter and Carrie. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for your time. Likewise. You guys are, you know your stuff. I learned a lot. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. 
please direct any appeals to our internal review board, at dev slash null. Please note that seppuku, while encouraged, does not guarantee absolution. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Thank you for participating in our longitudinal study of new and exciting messenger RNA gene therapy techniques. Please make a note of any abnormal growths, loss of vision, difficulty breathing, or death. Computer voice Curtis Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.